The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's bow our heads together. A few moments of silent prayer, so if you need to make sure you're in fellowship filled with the Spirit, you can avail yourself of that opportunity, and then we will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege to gather together as a body of believers to study your word, that you have revealed your truth to us, that by studying your word we come to know you, we develop a personal relationship with you, and we grow and mature as believers that you might be glorified. Father, now we pray that you would give us concentration and clarity of thought as the Holy Spirit guides and teaches us. We pray that we might be responsive to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. As we have stated on numerous occasions, the primary purpose or occasion for Paul writing this epistle is to correct a number of problems in the Galatian congregation. This stems from the fact that after Paul had come to this area in southern Galatia in order to communicate the gospel to them, and he founded several churches that on his heels were a group of people known as Judaizers. The reason they were called Judaizers is because they wanted to take Christians in the church age and take them back under the Mosaic Law basically teaching them that that it was okay for Paul to teach that salvation was based on the death of Christ on the cross, but if you really wanted to have the spiritual life, if you really wanted to grow, you had to follow the Mosaic Law. You had to uh, be certain, the males had to be circumcised, and you had to basically become a part of Israel. And so Paul is correcting all of this. And, of course, one of the areas in which so many Christians get confused is in the area of giving. They always want to go back to the law when it comes to giving, to a system of tithing. So we are going to have to address the whole doctrine of giving this morning 
as it pertains to our passage in Galatians 6, 6. Paul writes, And let the one who is taught the Word share all good things with him who teaches. Now, before we get into the doctrine of giving, the first thing we need to do is a little exegesis on the passage to make sure we understand exactly what is going on here from the original language. First thing we ought to pay attention to is the main verb. The main verb is koinoneo. looks like this. K-O-I-N-O-N-E-O. And it is uh, related to the word, the noun, koinonia, which of course means uh, fellowship, partnership. It means to um, share one's possessions with the implication of a joint participation and mutual interest. It means to share, it means to join together, it means to give. It is a present active imperative, second person singular. So we'll just put this up here, present active imperative. Now let's look at what these syntactical descriptions tell us about this verb. First of all, present tense usually indicates continuous action. There are a number of other nuances to the present, but that fits this as well. The imperative tells us that this is a mandate. This is a command. This is a principle that is incumbent upon every single believer. A mandate means this isn't an option. This isn't um, an alternative. This isn't a suggestion. This means that it is a, a mandate incumbent upon every believer. It's a present imperative. Now, we have seen in our study of syntax that a present imperative tends to stress the principle as the standard operating procedure for the spiritual life. That this is something that should govern every single believer through the entire course of their life. And that this is to be a habit pattern, a spiritual habit pattern that is cultivated and becomes a matter of self-discipline in the life of a believer. That's in contrast to an aorist imperative. An aorist imperative stresses the urgency and the priority of an action. So the present imperative here tells us that this is expected of every single believer. That we are to share our possessions, our physical resources, our physical and financial resources. Let the one share all good things. Now, the principle that underlies this mandate is the principle of grace and not legalism. Now, what's the difference? See, some people get the idea that grace means no absolutes. No imperatives. That I can just do whatever I want to do. That is antinomianism. Antinomianism means anti-against namas law. It means there are no principles for the spiritual life. Now you always run into some people who want to get away with everything and they think that because Christ paid the penalty on the cross that somehow this absolves New Testament believers of any form of responsibility or obligation. 
and that's not true. In fact, it places us under a greater obligation. But it is not an obligation to curry favor with God or to gain approbation with God. It's not a system or means of gaining blessing with God. It is simply a recognition that as members of the royal family of God, there are certain things that are our obligations, certain things that are our responsibilities that pertain to every single believer. And we're going to see how this works itself out in a minute. The difference between grace and legalism is that legalism says that what you do gains the approval of God and that the blessing of God is based on what you do, that somehow you are go- your works, your giving is going to uh, somehow impress God and He's going to give you a little extra. This has its worst form today in what is called the health and wealth gospel, also called the name it, claim it gospel or the prosperity gospel. And that's the idea that, that if... Uh, I give money to the church that the Lord's going to restore it tenfold. Now, the Lord is going to restore whatever tenfold, but not necessarily in kind. Because that is a biblical principle. See, that's how these things are distorted. You get, I remember having a, a person in one of my classes years ago when I taught at Houston Bible Institute saying that God is like a Coke machine. I think what she had in mind was a slot machine, really. You put in $5 and he'll give you back $500. And that is the blasphemy and the heresy of the health and wealth position. Now, it is a true principle that if we are givers, and we will see this from both the Old and New Testament, that if we are givers and generous and let grace impact every arena of our life, and I'm not talking about just giving in terms of finances, but giving as a whole, that that returns to us tenfold and a hundredfold, but not necessarily in kind. Just because you are generous with money does not mean God is going to increase your bank account. That will return to you in many different ways, many different forms of blessing over the years, but not necessarily in kind. Legalism says you've got to give 10%. That's it. Grace says the principle is generosity. Dr. Ryrie used to say, that when you're a new believer, you ought to just start with 9 or 11%, forget 10%, and then move on from there. Grace is a whole lot more than 10%. 10% is, not only is 10% a wrong number, as we're going to see, 10% is, is rather um, uh, niggardly. That word means that you're a tightwad. And the principle is, as we're going to see, from God's grace giving goes far beyond uh, simple percentages. Okay, so the point starts off, let everyone share. This is a principle of uh, a mandate for the spiritual life. It is a principle of grace. This is the epistle of grace par excellence. And so Paul is going to demonstrate the fact that just because we're under grace doesn't mean giving is no longer uh, part of the spiritual life, but he's going to emphasize the basis for giving. Remember, grace does not excuse you from giving, but it gives you the freedom to give from a totally different basis. The next key word we need to look at here is a participial phrase, a relative participle, ha katakamenos in the Greek. It starts off with a definite article which tells us it's going to be an adjectival participle. 
And the verb is katekeo. K-A-T-E-C-H-E-O. This is the word, it's the verb, the noun is the word from which we get our English word, catechism. Now, katekeo means to teach. It means to instruct. It refers to a particular type of instruction, though. It's not simply didas, didasko, which is the general word for teaching or instruction. Katekeo refers to someone who instructs in a relatively detailed manner. Someone who teaches in a systematic, categorized way of teaching. It's what we call around here the ICE method. I-C-E. And for those of you who may be new to this, we better explain this. The I stands for isagogics. C stands for categories. And E stands for exegesis. Now, isagogics basically looks at the background of the text. The Word of God must be interpreted in light of the time in which it was written. So, isagogics is going to look at historical backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, literary backgrounds. You have to understand various idioms and forms of speech. Uh, as they pertain to the time, and religious backgrounds, such as the understanding of the mystery religions. If you don't understand the mystery religions of Greece at the uh, first, first century B.C. and first century A.D., you will never have a clue as to what's going on in 1 Corinthians. You'll be totally confused, especially when you get to the problem with tongues and the problem with gifts. Categories. This is the classification of what the Bible teaches into various subjects, categorization and classification. You see what happens ever since the Garden of Eden when God placed man in the garden and he gave Adam the responsibility of naming, that is, to, he had to name the animals, he had to classify the animals. He had to categorize them according to type. I would think that, that uh, uh, Adam may have even had if, he didn't have, if it weren't for the fact that he had a remarkable memory, he probably had a system of even writing just so he could keep track of the different names and why he called different animals different things. But that sets the pattern. Man is given all of the information in Revelation and where to go through and classify it according to subject matter. And so that is why we talk about different doctrines such as redemption, propitiation, atonement, doctrines of the last things, doctrine of the rapture, second coming, doctrine of inheritance, eternal security, classify according to subject matter, break it down in terms of points, definitions, to make sure we don't just look at what's taught in a particular passage. For example, there's just one aspect of the doctrine of giving given in Galatians 6.6. 6. But if we look at this without relating it to the rest of Scripture, then we can have a distorted view of the doctrine. So this categories relates to the principle of comparing Scripture with Scripture. And then exegesis looks at the language. We have to understand the original language of either Hebrew in the Old Testament, Aramaic in a few passages, Greek in the New Testament. We have to understand the grammar, the syntax, which is the arrangement of the words together and why they are arranged that way and the significance of that as well as uh, the, doing our lexical studies to understand the meaning of the words. 
and the significance and various nuances of the words that will that that are there. And then we extract from this study of the syntax, the uh, lexicography, we extract the various principles of doctrine that then can be applied to our life. So that is the process of katekeo instruction. It is detailed and systematic. It's not a 15 to 20 minute homily. It's not uh, getting up and having a little emotional devotional so that we all feel good about Jesus and can all go home and say, oh, wasn't it good to be at church this morning? I just feel like I I worshiped and then it it makes no difference in the way you think or the way you live. I'll never forget the the story. I don't know if this is apocryphal or not. Story I heard of J. Vernon McGee. Now, some of you who know who Dr. McGee was, Dr. McGee was a crusty old man and I wish I had known him because of some of the things I've heard. He originally went to Seminary Union Seminary down in Virginia, which was a fairly liberal Presbyterian seminary by that time in the late 20s or early 30s, and he didn't like that liberal theology. He was from a town in in Texas called Waxahachie, which is an Indian word. We won't go into what it means. It will probably embarrass most of you. And uh, he decided to check out Dallas Seminary because he had heard about this new seminary in Dallas and wanted to make sure that nobody was legalistic there, so he drove up to the campus and got out of his car and pulled out a big cigar and put it in his mouth and walked into the admissions office. Well, J. Vernon McGee was a pastor of Church of the Open Door out in uh, Los Angeles for years, which was an enormous church. He had a uh, uh, nationwide uh, radio ministry. In fact, Pastor Theme's brother-in-law is now the director of that ministry since uh, McGee has gone to be with the Lord. And... uh, McGee was invited to speak in chapel one time at Dallas Seminary. Now, every day we had to go to chapel, and it was usually a short little 20-minute message. But McGee did not know that or did not remember that. And he was invited to speak in chapel. And they usually sang a song, gave a couple of announcements, and then the speaker would would uh, teach from the Word or share from the Word something for 15 or 20 minutes. And just prior to chapel, McGee found out he only had 20 minutes. So he got up. I just love this. He got up in the pulpit and he looked around and he said, Well, men, I just found out I only have 20 minutes. You can't say anything worthwhile about the Word of God in 20 minutes. Let's close in prayer. I don't think the faculty ever invited him back. They, they didn't quite like that old Dallas view of teaching the Word. Katekeo is more than emotional devotionals. It is detailed study of the Word of God. So the beginning of this verse says, Let the one, that is the believer who is sitting in a congregation, where they are taught the Word systematically, categorically, from the original languages, share, that is financially contribute, from their resources, that is, all good things. And there we have the word for good is agathos. Agathos, A-G-A-T-H-O-S, refers to a good of intrinsic value. So this is talking about an exchange rate here between the pastor who comes in and he teaches the Word of God and provides spiritual nourishment to the congregation, and in return, the congregation supports that ministry financially. So the principle underlying this is a 
uh, barter system that the pastor is worthy of his hire. He teaches the word and has a right to live on the basis of that so that he can devote all of his time to the study of the word of God, to learning, to teaching, and not be distracted by having to go out and work a second job or do a tent-making job. Now, Paul did that at times, and there are times when that's necessary, but that is not the standard that churches should be working toward. So the congregation is supposed to be generous with whatever God has provided for them so that they can in turn support the ministry of a local church. And it is a responsibility incumbent upon every believer to support the ministry that is feeding them. That's what this is teaching. This is not talking about the fact that your priority is missions or some parachurch organization or anything else, but your number one priority is to support the local congregation. Everything else is secondary. The local congregation where you are being fed the Word of God. And there's a lot entailed in that. Now, there are a lot of misgivings or misunderstandings about giving, so I want to break this down, and we're going to start by looking at the doctrine of tithing. The doctrine of tithing. Point number one. Definition. Tithe, T-I-T-H-E, comes from the old English word that means one-tenth. It means to give one-tenth. It does not mean to give. Sometimes I hear some religious people talk about, don't you believe in tithing? What they really mean is, don't you believe in giving to the local church on a regular, consistent basis? But they've never been taught very much, and they don't know much about the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between law and grace. And they come out of certain congregations, certain denominations, where the emphasis is always on tithing. But they don't understand that it doesn't mean give. It's not a synonym for giving. It means one-tenth, one percent. And it is only one type of giving listed in the Scriptures. It's only one type of giving listed in the Scriptures. There are other types. Point number two. In the Old Testament, the first mention of giving is found in Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14 in relation to Abraham's gift to the king priest of Salem, Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a very mysterious figure in the Old Testament. We don't know where he came from. We don't know his lineage. We don't know who he was. But he was a Gentile. He was a Gentile. I personally believe he was either Shem or one of Shem's immediate descendants from the flood. If you think about it and work out the chronology in the post-flood environment, you will discover that Shem and his son and his grandson were our Shem died I think Shem died just before Abraham lived or shortly thereafter they lived for a long time whereas the subsequent generations lived only for a few years Shem lived to be a little over 500 years of age but by Abraham's life which was just about six or seven generations later Abraham only lived to be about 130 years of age so you see the rapid shortening of the lifespan there But while these generations, five, six, seven generations later, were coming along, that generation from the flood was still alive. And so here you have a Gentile in Jerusalem 
who has a following, a, a, a group of followers who are still devoted to Yahweh, to the God of, who is not yet known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the God who preserved Noah in the flood. He's a Gentile who still teaches the truth, who still teaches doctrine. When there's a, an alliance under Keterleomer of four kings from the east who come in and invade the land, and they come through and they ravage the beautiful area around Sodom and Gomorrah and the Dead Sea, which wasn't the Dead Sea at that time, and it was a gorgeous, beautiful valley that was well watered, and when they invaded that and they took off all the spoils, along with the spoils, they took Abraham's nephew Lot and his family. And so Abraham got his servants together and the men who worked for him, basically a small army, and went out and ambushed these four kings and defeated them and brought back all the, the booty, the bounty or the, uh, that they had stolen from the valley of, of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And when he came back, he gave a tenth of it to Melchizedek. Now, why did he do that? He did not do it because there was some mandate to do it. Nowhere in Genesis 1 through 11 is there a mention of giving at all. This is the first time we have any evidence of someone giving to a priest, to a religious leader in response, in a gracious response to what God has done in the life. So we learn that giving starts with gratitude. Giving starts with gratitude. It is a free will offering. It's not a mandated offering. So the first time we see the use of the word tithe in the Old Testament, it is related not to a legislated amount, but to a free will determination. So for whatever reason, Abraham decided it would be 10%. That's not a legislated amount. It was his own decision. You can give whatever amount you want. He chose 10%, and he did it out of gratitude. Gratitude, it comes. the word we have for gratitude, the English word, derives ultimately, etymologically, from the Latin word that is also the root for grace. You see, your appreciation for grace is evidenced by your gratitude to God. So there's a direct connection between gratitude and grace orientation, and the level to which we appreciate the grace of God in our lives impacts our pocketbook. That's what happened with Abraham. We have a free will offering in response to what God has done in our lives. So point number two was that in the Old Testament, tithing is first used in Genesis 14 in relation to Abraham's gift to Melchizedek, and it is a free will grace offering. Point number three. The next mention of tithing comes in the Mosaic Law. The next mention of tithing comes under the Mosaic Law. And for those of you who've never studied this issue, you may be surprised to learn that there was not one tithe, but three tithes mentioned in the Mosaic Law. So I've always laughed with people who say, well, I give my tithe. Well, if you really want to have a tithe system, the issue is not giving 10%. The issue is, at times, giving 30%. So... It's a real challenge. It's always interesting how people pick and choose what they want to apply from the, from the Bible. Tithe was given in the Mosaic Law. And remember, the Mosaic Law is the legislation given by God. It is comparable to the Constitution for a theocracy. In a theocracy, 
God is the ruler. God is the executive in charge of the nation. And the bureaucracy that runs the nation is the priesthood. If you don't understand this, you won't understand tithing at all. In the Old Testament setup, the Mosaic Law provides the constitutional legal basis for running the nation Israel. Moses was the founder of the nation of Israel, and you have to have three things to have a nation. You have to have a land, you have to have a people, and you have to have a constitution, a body of law. And and it was at Mount Sinai that God gave them the body of law. It is at Mount Sinai that the people are organized, and then they leave Mount Sinai to go to the promised land. Of course, they failed at Kadesh Barnea, but eventually they got there. So the Mosaic Law establishes the theocracy. It establishes, there are three parts to it. There's the preamble, which is the Ten Commandments. The second part has to do with the uh, civil and criminal law. And the third part has to do with the spiritual life of the nation. And these are regulations for offerings, for sacrifices, for the priesthood, etc. So these are the three parts, and it applies to every citizen. Let's just start there. It applies to every citizen in Israel, and this means that it applies to believers and unbelievers alike. Well, all of a sudden now we realize that all of the tithing laws are going to be related to the, to the civil laws of the nation, and they are going to apply to both believer and unbeliever. In that case, we realized that tithing had nothing to do with the spiritual life of a Jew in the Old Testament. It had to do with supporting the bureaucracy, financing the Levites, providing their physical sustenance under a theocracy. Point number four. The first tithe was levied every year on all Jewish citizens, believer and unbeliever, for the financial support of the Levites. So the first tithe goes to the Levites. Now remember in our study of the doctrine of inheritance, we saw that inheritance means possession, and that every tribe in Israel had a possession in the land, except for one. That was the Levites. And we made a point about the fact that inheritance doesn't mean entry, when it talks about heaven, it talks about the kingdom of God, it doesn't mean simply entry into the kingdom, but it means to have a possession in the kingdom. And by analogy, we saw that in the Old Testament economy, that the Levites were in the land, but they didn't have a possession in the land. They didn't have a plot of real estate that was designated for the tribe of Levi. Instead, they were given the tithe, the 10% from all the citizens of Israel, was their portion. That was their inheritance, and that provided their sustenance. They were to keep up the temple. They were to see to the spiritual needs of the people. And, of course, it's interesting to observe, and you must always remember this, that there there was no spiritual qualifications to be a priest in Israel. You, You had physical qualifications. You had to be of the tribe of Levi, and you couldn't have any defects. You couldn't have any skin sores or leprosy, a number of other qualifications. But there's no qualification that you had to be a believer. You just had to be of the tribe of Levi. All of this, everything related to the Levites, the priesthood, the 
tabernacle service, temple service. All of these were training aids designed to teach certain elements of spiritual truth. So it wasn't necessary for the people themselves to be believers, but their function illustrated spiritual truth. In the Old Testament, remember, they are not indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. They're not filled by God the Holy Spirit. They do not have a completed canon of Scripture. And so because the amount of information they have is limited and because their understanding is limited because it's based solely on the natural the natural uh, soul and human spirit without the instruction, teaching, and guidance of the Holy Spirit, God teaches them in very concrete, in a very concrete manner. Everything is done very visually. We're going to come back and see why that's important in a minute. But everything is done very visually. You don't start getting into more abstract doctrines until you get in the New Testament when believers are going to have the indwelling Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit to teach them doctrine so they can understand it. So the Old Testament is very simple and concrete. New Testament gets more abstract. First tithe is related to the support of the Levites who function as the administrative bureaucracy in the nation. This is found in Numbers 18.21 and 24. Numbers 18.21 and 24. Verse 21 reads, And to the sons of Levi, Behold, I have given all the tithe. God is speaking here. I have given all the tithe, that is the entire 10% of of all of Israel, for an inheritance in return for their service which they perform. So God is providing this as financial uh, sustenance for the nation in return for their work in the temple, for the service which they perform, the service of the tent of meeting. Verse 24, For the tithe of the sons of Israel, which they offer as an offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore I have said concerning them, they shall have no inheritance, that is, a land possession, among the sons of Israel. Point number five. The second tithe. So if you're a Jew under the Old Testament law, you would add up your uh, income at the end of the year, your gross income, and you would look at that and you would take out 10% and that would be paid to the temple because the Levites are the bureaucracy. They are the, it is the, the priests who are going to be the tax collectors in essence. They're the ones who are going to oversee the collection and distribution of the tithe. So you would take 10% every year to the tabernacle or to the temple. The second tithe means that you take another 10%, and this you're going to take to Jerusalem. And I find this to be a fascinating tithe. So let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy chapter 14, the last book in the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22. Now this is particularly dedicated to those of you who think that God is some door frowning, overbearing God who doesn't have a sense of humor and doesn't have a good time. Verse 22, you shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. Now, this is an agricultural society, so what we're talking about 
is that they are to take a 10% of the gross national product. Everybody has a farm. Everybody's to take 10% out of what they sow, out of their production. Verse 23, what are they going to do with this 10%? This is interesting. And you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name. That would be Jerusalem at the, at the temple eventually. At the place where he chooses to establish his name, the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, in order that you may learn to fear, that is to respect, Yahweh your God always. So the point is, you're going to take, you're going to take your firstborn lambs, you're going to take your firstborn calves, you're going to take your, your new, 10% of your new wine, you're going to take 10% of the grain, you're going to take 10% of the fruit of the field, and you're going to go to Jerusalem, and you are going to have a national party. You are going to celebrate the grace of God through using one-tenth of your production. Now, this must have been one heck of a thing if they had actually done it. I don't know that Israel ever did it. I think they were just too, maybe too tight to give up their money. And there's a reason for this. But notice some of the other regulations. Look at verse 24. And if the distance is so great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe, in other words, you live up in Dan somewhere up in the north, and it's too hard for you to take all these cattle and sheep and all this other stuff with you, you can sell it and just bring the money. Then you shall exchange it for money, verse 25, and bind the money in your hand and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses, and you may spend the money for what... Notice this. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen, for sheep, for wine, or strong drink. Now, strong drink, folks, is not scotch. Not even a good single malt scotch. This is talking about a Hebrew word, shakak. I don't want to shock any of you, it's barley beer. Barley beer. See, they didn't know how to distill hard liquor until uh, late in the, or early in the Middle Ages, around the 9th or 10th century A.D. So when you read strong drink here, we're not talking about uh, doing tequila shots or scotch or vodka or anything like that. We're talking about just good old barley beer. And they would, uh, they, God says, now you go out and you get whatever you want. You go get a couple of six-packs. Come on, loosen up a little bit this morning. You get some good prime rib. You get whatever you want, and you have a celebration in my presence. There you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God, and what? And rejoice. Have a good time. Now, we're not just going to be somber and sit back here and put on this serious face. We're going to have a party to celebrate the goodness of God in supplying all of our needs throughout the last year. And furthermore, verse 27, You shall not neglect the Levite who is in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. In other words, he doesn't have flocks. He doesn't have a herd of cattle. He doesn't have a plot of land. So you take care of his needs as well. You provide... Uh, you go out and buy a prime rib for your family. You buy one for the Levite too. You buy a six-pack. You go buy him a six-pack. You take care of the Levite as well. 
Now, this was the principle. Under the Deuteronomic Law Code, God has a passage, or Moses sets out a passage from the Lord at the end. The whole Deuteronomic Law Code is based on an ancient Hittite treaty form called the Suzerain Vassal Treaty Form. And that basically outlines the responsibilities and obligations of the vassal, that is the servant nation, the client nation, to the great king. That's the suzerain, the great king. You talk about an emperor, and he would have various client nations out there. And he would, the emperor then would say, okay, here's the deal. We're going to enter into a contract, a covenant, and uh, because I am the king, I will do certain things for you. And as long as you are obedient to me and follow all of my stipulations... I will do these things for you. But if you are a rebellious vassal and you don't give to me that which I deserve, you don't uh, send your taxes to me and you don't send your, your produce to me and you don't protect my borders and you don't defend me from uh, alien armies, then I'm going to do certain negative things to you. So there was a, at the conclusion of the Suzerain Vassal Treaty Form, there was a series of blessings and a series of curses. And that's exactly what we have at the end of Deuteronomy. The curses are the five cycles of discipline. And one of the things you notice if you read through the five cycles of discipline that at least the first four cycles are very economic in their orientation. God is saying, if you obey me, Israel, as my firstborn and you fulfill the function for which I delivered you from slavery in Egypt then I am going to bless and prosper you economically as a nation. But if you disobey me, if you are unfaithful to me, if you go after idols, then I am going to curse you, and that will be successive stages of national deterioration, all marked by economic collapse. This is very concrete. You're either going to have more money if you obey me, you won't have more money if you disobey me. God's giving them very tangible evidence of how they're going to be, how they're doing spiritually. And how are you going to check this out? Well, every year we're going to have a checkpoint. We're going to have our national celebration. We're going to check the GNP. We're going to take 10% and have a national celebration. So if at the end of a year you had a GNP worth $250 million, and you took out 10% of that, which would be $25 million, you could have a pretty good party. You have some great fireworks. You could uh, get all the, um, all the microbreweries in town to supply your beer. And you could just have a, um, a tremendous celebration with the best food prepared by the best chefs in the land. But let's say 10 years later you got together and the GNP was only $25 million. Took 10% of that and you only had $2.5 million. Now you've got 3 million people in the land, so that's, uh, that's not even a dollar a person. You can't have much of a party on that kind of money. So instead of going down and getting a you know, micro-brewed beer, you're going to have to get something horrible like Coors or Budweiser, <laughs> if you can even afford that. And... Uh, you're going to have a lot of, uh, you know, fast food from McDonald's or Burger King, and uh, instead of that uh, prime rib, and all of a sudden you're going to be scratching your head and thinking, you remember about ten years ago, we had quite a party. That was fantastic. We had remember those fireworks? What a display! We can't even have fireworks now. What's wrong? 
What's wrong is you're over here, and it's real obvious you're in spiritual rebellion, so wake up and turn around spiritually. That was the whole point of this, was to give them a self-evaluation tool for their spirituality, for their obedience to God on an annual basis. So you have one tithe that goes to support the Levites. You had another 10% that went to a national celebration. And then every third year, where are we? We're down into point six. Every third year, every third year you had another tithe, an extra 10%. So you'd have two years would go by at 20%, and then in the third year you were hit with a 30% tax. And this is uh, described in Deuteronomy 14.28. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. Notice, local control, not federal control, of the tax dollars here. Just a little side point. Local control, not federal control. This is not a system of socialism. This is a system of charity to take care of the less fortunate, and it would be handled on a case-by-case basis in the locality where the people were known so that the legitimacy of their claims were known. And look at how this is to be distributed. It's deposited in your town, verse 29, the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien, that is the non-Jew who is living in your town, the orphan and the widow... See, in that kind of environment where you have basically still a patriarchal society where the, the family worked, if you had an orphan without a uh, uh, father to, to work and provide for him, or you had a woman have a husband to provide for her, they were cast upon the, the uh, charity of the, the, those around them for their daily sustenance. So the orphan and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that, what, the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So Israel has promised blessing based upon giving the tithe. So there are, we have seen, three different tithes. The first tithe supported the Levites. The second tithe was for a national party. And the third tithe had to do with taking care of the less fortunate in the nation. Point number seven, conclusion. Each Jewish citizen was required to give 20% every year for the support of the nation, and every third year, 30%. This giving is not related in any way to their spiritual life. It is for believer and unbeliever alike. It is not spiritual giving. Point. Tithing has nothing to do with your spiritual life. Never did and never will. Point number eight. You see, tithing isn't the only category of giving in the Old Testament. There is also free will offerings in the Old Testament. Point number eight. Giving related to the spiritual life was based on a free will offering that was motivated by the individual believer's understanding, response, and appreciation for the grace of God. Giving related to the spiritual life was not based on a mandated 10% tax. It's based on a free will offering that is motivated by the individual believer's understanding, response, and appreciation for the grace of God.
You see, the Scripture doesn't levy any specific amount for free will giving. That's something you determine between you and the Lord, depending on a number of factors, as we will see when we get into the doctrine of giving. It's determined by your own spiritual growth, your own capacity. Someone once said, it almost sounds a little trite, but I think it's true, a faith that is heaven high is pockets deep. I remember some sermon on that when I was in seminary. And there's truth to that. A, A very important truth, that the greater your appreciation for the grace of God, the more it's going to impact what's in your pocket. Jesus said it. He said, for where a man's uh, treasure is, that is where his heart is also. How you handle your money related to spiritual giving says more about your priorities and your spiritual life than almost any other factor. It's real easy to give up two or three hours a week to be in Bible class. It's a little more difficult to start reaching into our bank account and be giving generously to the support of a local congregation. Giving in the Old Testament was, spiritual giving was based on free will offering motivated by the individual believer's understanding response and appreciation for the grace of God. Exodus 35:29, when they were providing all of the furniture and all the items necessary for the tabernacle, the Israelites, all the men and women, whose heart that is the mental attitude. They, that the word heart in the Hebrew is lev, and just like its counterpart in the Greek cardia, it refers to the innermost thinking part of the soul. So when it says in Exodus 35:29, "Whose heart moved them," it's talking about the, their motivation to give. It is a mental attitude response. That means they thought about it. They reflected upon it. It's not an emotional response. It's not motivated by guilt. It's motivated by serious reflection upon what God has done in the life of the individual believer. Reflection upon the degree to which God has prospered them so that giving is proportional and not irresponsible, and then that person makes a decision based upon an honest cognitive reflection on the data to give a certain amount to the Lord. So the Israelites, all the men and women whose heart moved them, it is between them and the Lord, it is no one else's business how much you give. That's why we bend over backwards to make sure that we guarantee privacy in relationship to giving in this church. I don't know and I don't ever want to know what anybody ever gives for anything. That's none of my business. And I know some pastors pay a lot of attention to things like that, and I think that's wrong. It is between the individual and the Lord. You know, another thing that always bothers me about giving, I heard this 30 years ago in a church that was going through a bit of a crisis. It was a minor split at the time. And I overheard this man who was a friend of my parents, said, well, I'm not going to leave. I'm going to stick around here. I've invested so much money in this church, I want to make sure it's spent right. And I thought, that person has never understood grace giving. Not once. The moment that money leaves your hands, it is no longer yours to decide whether it's being used right, wrong, this way, that way. It's a gift. 
A gift means no strings are attached. If you think there's one string attached to the finances you give to the local church, don't give. Period. God didn't give His Son with strings attached. That's the standard. We abuse the grace of God and misuse the grace of God every single day in our spiritual life. Every time we sin, we're taking advantage of the grace of God. God doesn't say, well, you know, I gave it to you, but now I'm going to take it back because you're not using what I gave you correctly. God never does that. See, our responsibility is to give to the Lord's work and support it. And people and churches we support and ministries we support are going to make decisions that we don't necessarily agree with. I have always made it a policy in my life never to second-guess any decisions a ministry makes with money I give to them. They may put it here. They may put it there. They may do this thing and that thing. As long as the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ is accurately presented and key basic principles of the spiritual life are being taught, that's all that matters. It is not my job, my prerogative, my position, or my responsibility to second-guess their administrative decisions. That's between them and the Lord. Once that money leaves my hand, I have nothing more to say about it, and I forget I ever gave them a dime. Giving is always based on grace. So in, in the Old Testament, there was free will offerings based upon this internal motivation which was based upon their reflection of what God's grace meant in their lives. Other passages are, that mention free will offerings are Leviticus 7.16, 18, 22, Leviticus 22.21, and Leviticus 22.23. Also Leviticus 23.38, Numbers 29.39, Deuteronomy 12.6 and 17, and Deuteronomy 16.10. So you have two categories of giving. Let's chart this out. You have the tithe, which is for believer and unbeliever, and is a national tax. It is not spiritual. On the other hand, you have free will offerings, which is for believers only and is related to the spiritual life. Point number nine. During times of apostasy in Israel, the citizens failed to pay their taxes. Because they're in reversionism, they're not going to support the temple, they're not going to support the Levites. They're operating on a self-centered, self-absorbed, me-first policy, and so they're not going to give a dime to the state if they can get away with it. So in times of apostasy in Israel, the citizens failed to pay their taxes, the believers were in reversionism, and unbelievers were operating on arrogance. This is the background from Malachi 3, verses 8 through 10, a passage you'll always hear somebody go to when they're preaching on tithing. Here we read, God is indicting the nation for their selfishness. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? God says in tithes and offerings, both, both categories, both in terms of the tax and in terms of your free will offerings, you are robbing me. Why? God, has, God is the one who gives us every single dime. You think about what's in your bank account. 
That's one of the most convicting things. Every dime I have is from the Lord, period. Every breath I take, every drop of water I drink, every morsel of food I put in my mouth comes from the Lord. I have the privilege of having a job. I may not. I've been there. Some of you have been there. You know that that is a blessing of God to have a source of income and a day-to-day job. Everything we have comes from the Lord, and we need to recognize that. So ultimately, everything goes back to the Lord. Malachi 3.9, You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe, that is the tax, into the storehouse. And here we have the Greek word, or the Hebrew word, bait. B-E-T-H for house. Bait. Ha otsar. That's the, the ha is the definite article. Ha otsar. H A O, really T Z A R. And this is treasury, the storehouse. This is where the Levites kept the money they collected. You brought it to the temple. They were the, they were the tax collectors. They saw to its, its distribution. In fact, there's a couple of passages in 2 Kings when they were rebuilding the temple and the priests did a poor job of redistributing the tithe that uh, I think it was Joash reorganized the treasury because of the inefficiency of the distribution of the tithe to the workers. They weren't getting paid on time. So there's clear evidence that the entire financial bureaucracy and distribution system flowed out of the temple. So Malachi 3, 8 through 10 has to do with the breakdown of the tax system in Israel and it has nothing to do with the uh, free will offering as mandated in the New Testament. Conclusion, point number 10. Tithing then is the legislation of a specific amount to be given to the bureaucratic operation of the nation Israel. It's a fundamental principle of the Mosaic Law, which applied to believer and unbeliever alike, and therefore tithing had nothing to do with the spiritual life. Spiritual life giving was based on an entirely different principle, grace and freedom. Grace means it goes beyond simple 10%. Now, I'm not legislating in numbers. Sometimes all it can be is 1% or 2%. I recognize that. But it is based on the principle of generosity. And freedom means that it's between you and the Lord and it's no one else's business. What happens in the New Testament, remember the tithe goes to the nation. When the nation Israel, or really when Christ comes, dies on the cross, and the law is fulfilled, the tithe at that point is canceled. Especially after Israel goes out under the Fifth cycle of discipline, as far as Gentiles are concerned, we're not in the nation Israel. There's no longer a temple functioning in Israel. There's no longer priesthood functioning. The tithe is is wiped out as far as Israel is concerned. But this is replaced by the tax system of our local national entity, whatever it may be, whether it's here in the United States, in Germany, uh, Holland, Russia, wherever it is. Jesus said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. Every nation has the right to establish a tax system that is the same for believer and unbeliever alike. What survives in the New Testament is only this aspect of giving in the church. Free will giving, which is based on the principle of grace and not on the basis of a legislated amount. 
But nevertheless, even though it's free will giving, it is still mandated for every believer. It's, giving is not an option. As we'll see next week when we come back to the doctrine of grace giving, giving is a function of our priesthood just as much as prayer and learning doctrine is a part of our priesthood. Prayer is not optional. Now, we may choose not to pray, and that's going to have a negative impact on our spiritual life. We may choose not to give, and that will have a negative impact on our spiritual life. We may choose not to go to Bible class very regularly, and that's going to have an impact on our spiritual life. Nevertheless, we still have an obligation as members of the royal family of God to fulfill those functions. Now, sometimes people have a knee-jerk reaction. They don't like this word. I like to use it because it sort of grabs our attention. We have an obligation, an inherent obligation as a member of the family of God to certain responsibilities. And that's all I'm emphasizing here is that there are certain incumbent responsibilities as being a member of the family of God. Let's take an illustration. Let's say I were to give you a brand new year 2000 Cadillac fully loaded with every conceivable option. Now, that's yours. No strings attached. Your name's on the title. You can do with it whatever you want to. Well, owning that Cadillac now entails a responsibility to take care of it, doesn't it? Now, you may not take care of it. You may not put air in the tires. You may not get the oil changed. You may not get a periodic tune-up. There may be many different things that you don't do, and it may just fall apart on you within six months if you don't take care of it. That's your freedom. That's your freedom to be irresponsible. But nevertheless, the reception on ownership of something entails a certain responsibility to operate it according to the rules. And the rules are not, that's not legalism. Legalism is saying that those rules are the basis for our approbation with God and the basis of blessing. God says that we have certain responsibilities and obligations that are part of our position as being in the royal family of God. We are royal ambassadors, and we are royal priests. We have responsibilities to our national entity as well. And we'll come back next time and examine that under the principle of grace giving, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the privilege we've had to look at your word today to uh, understand these important principles related to tithing and giving that we're not under a mosaic uh, law mandating a specific amount or anything like that, that that is not a basis for our blessing, that we are under the principle of grace giving in the New Testament. Father, we thank you that the model for this is our salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ, your son whom you freely gave to go to the cross and die as a substitute for our sins. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal destiny, that is unsure of their salvation, that right now they would take that opportunity to put their faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Salvation is based upon only one thing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.